All right, let me direct your attention, please, to verse number 16, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 16. Now may the God, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful grace of God. Thank you, Lord, that that grace enables us to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, to be here this evening and to have complete assurance of our sins forgiven, to know that we have a home in heaven, to know that uh, we have a copy of your word this evening in which we can put our trust and on which we can rely, whose promises never fail. And we pray, Lord, that as we gather around it again this evening, that you will bless us, that you will shower your blessings upon us. We confess, Lord, that we are a needy people. Sometimes we don't even know what we need. We just have enough sense to know that we need. And so, Lord, would you come and meet us exactly where we are tonight? Would you cleanse us from sin? I pray, Lord, for me that you would just grant to me a a fresh sense of your fullness, your presence, the confidence of your blessed spirit to give people the the message that you've given me this evening and to preach your word. Thank you for this wonderful privilege. I pray that you would just bless the remainder of our service now. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, we do come to the conclusion of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians this evening. And it's kind of interesting, I mentioned to you before that there's a distinctly pastoral tone to this last chapter, and I mentioned that it begins with prayer, and then Paul has a rather difficult uh, matter that he needs to deal with. We talked about that last Sunday evening, and now Paul is ready, truly is ready to close the letter, and it closes again with prayer. So it's quite apparent that we have prayer in verse number 16. It kind of comes to us in the form of a benediction, if you will. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. That sounds very much like a benediction, but benedictions are prayers. I I trust we realize that. And of course, then we have the final verse, which is obviously prayer and continues this tone of benediction, which is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with you all. This is interesting because this is now the fourth time. I think maybe I mentioned to you this before, but it doesn't hurt us to be reminded of this. This is at least the fourth time now in so short a letter, because we only have three chapters here, but twice in chapter 3 and then once in each of the preceding chapters, we have reference to Paul praying for these people. I don't think we have need of going back to look at that, but they are in chapters uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, and then you have uh, another prayer in chapter 2, 16 through 17, and in this chapter we have chapter 3, verse 5. Just a brief prayer, just the one verse, and then what you saw here in the closing that we've just looked at a moment ago. But... I say that to say this. I think there is something that is special about this prayer. And there are two reasons, at least, that come to my mind to point that out to you tonight. First of all, this is the last thing that Paul is going to say to these people. Now, I'll back up for a moment and say, okay, I do not know whether or not Paul had further contact with them. One would assume that perhaps he did. Whether he wrote them another letter, we do not know. But for now, at least, this is the last contact that Paul has with them. And, you know, there is always something that I think we find particularly relevant and important about people's, what you might call, last words. Did you ever think about that very much? If you had the opportunity to do that, what would you say? And I'm reminded 
of a story about a man by the name of Eric Stevenson. Eric Stevenson, along with 154 other people, on the 15th of January, 2009, boarded U.S. Airways Flight 1459. It was a flight from New York's LaGuardia Airport to Charlotte, North Carolina. As you know, that particular flight, I'm sure you know this because the movie has been made about it, which is Miracle on the Hudson, and of course then there's the book Sully. But uh, you probably know that very shortly after takeoff, I mean, the, it, the, the takeoff itself was fine. There was no particular issues. Everything was routine until all of a sudden the pilot exclaims from the cockpit, birds! And the co-pilot who was actually flying the plane at that moment also had seen the birds. And what followed after that was that the airplane encountered what you would call a catastrophic bird strike. Bird strikes are not that uncommon, but to have one of this nature where you have thump, 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 birds pelting the fuselage, the wings, but birds then being ingested into both engines in such a way that at that moment or very shortly after, it's apparent that you have lost all thrust. Now, you think about this for a moment. This is a precarious situation. And so Eric Stevenson, as I recall, was sitting in a seat over the wings. He had known what the problem was, had even seen, I believe, by his testimony, some some fire in the engine as these birds went through. The cabin was filled with some smoke, which was the terrible smell of burning bird flesh. And Eric Stevenson thought to himself, my cell phone is in the overhead bin. And so... He did what he assumed was the very last thing he would ever have the opportunity to do. He pulled a business card out of his pocket, and on the back of that business card, which was apparently his own, he wrote three simple words to his mother and sister. Those words were, I love you. Now, fortunately, the captain on that flight, who is Sully Sullenberger, executed a near flawless water landing, which is very, very uncommon. Pilots really aren't even, I don't know what they do today, but but back then pilots really aren't even trained so much to do that on a commercial airliner. You're trained to find a runway. You're trained to find some place to put the plane down. But he executed a nearly flawless water landing in the Hudson River, and all 150 pass, 55 passengers and passengers and crew made it off U.S. Airways Flight 1459 safely on that sullen, cold, winter New York morning. Eric Stevenson didn't have to give or didn't have to have that card given later, which is what he thought was going to happen to his loved one. But you have to know that when they heard about that and knew about that, to know that they were thought of and that that was the sentiment that he thought would be the very last thing that he expressed towards them had to mean a great deal. So there's always something special about last words. I think there's something more here that we can look at in this, and that is that you have Paul taking a moment at the end of the letter to let his heart shine through. Not that it hasn't before, but this goes back to something that I said to you earlier. Nobody with any sense wants to end something on a negative down note, so to speak. And you you know this. We looked at this last week, and Paul has this delicate matter. He's had to spend time with it. In fact, it's really the it's really the meat of the chapter. It's it's what it's what takes up most of the time and most of the verse space in the chapter. He has to do that. He has to do that before he closes. But he wants to express some things which, at the very end, will just reassure people and end the letter on a positive note. There's nothing wrong with that. 
In fact, that's just plain good thinking. And um, so this is what you have here. I, I, I rather think of it this way. I don't know that I want to say that it shows us the heartbeat of Paul behind the rough exterior because I don't know what Paul's exterior was. I assume that with all the beatings and persecution and other things that he encountered in the course of his service for the Lord, he certainly must have developed a tough hide. But I do know this. Paul could be firm when Paul needed to be firm. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians and other places to find that to be true. But you would make a severe misjudgment of the Apostle Paul if you came away thinking that this was a gruff, unkind, rigid individual. And the things that he expresses at the end of this letter certainly reveal that to us. And so I have three things this evening that I want you to consider with me that I think are special because they form Paul's last thoughts to the Thessalonians, but beyond that, they reveal his heart. And what does Paul have on his heart as he closes this letter? Well, first of all, there is peace, the subject of peace, peace rejoicing the heart. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't speak for you, but I think the older I get and the more I live, the more I realize how important peace is. I frame it here as you look at it on the screen, a a quality upon which we should place a premium. I don't know about you, but I don't like situations where I am robbed of the peace that I know God wants me to have, or just the domestic peace even. If you think about this for a moment, have you ever been out in public, been in a store or some other context like this, and all of a sudden there are people bickering? I don't know how that makes you feel. That doesn't make me feel good. I don't like that. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. I remember, I I think about that song, this theme, I'm going there to see my mother, I'm going there to see my father, and what one of us doesn't think. And I was thinking a little bit about my dad, such a colorful individual, such a neat guy. And, of course, I haven't seen him since he went to be with the Lord in 1995, but he had an interesting way of picking up expressions. If he heard a colorful phrase, or sometimes he would just coin them himself. But you can kind of figure out based on my rough age. My rough age is seven. Okay, so you can kind of figure, all right, I grew up through the hippie period. And there are plenty of people in here who either did that or remember it. And, you know, it was all about peace, brother, all this kind of stuff all the time. And so my dad comes up with this expression on this one occasion. If my brother and I got to fighting a little bit or something like that, and he'd say, okay, peace in the commune. And we'd have to laugh. And you have to understand, he, he just had that sort of way about him. I mean, it was, you could laugh and you could smile, but you also knew it meant business. It meant that we were disturbing the peace. And my dad didn't like that and didn't want that to prevail, and so he would caution us about that thing. Well, that's kind of what you have really going on here in in Second Thessalonians and in First Thessalonians. This type of peace that we're talking about, especially in the context of the church, or you can simply just relate it to your life as an individual believer. This is God's will for us. God wants us to enjoy peace. God wants us to maintain peace. And the problem is, though, at Thessalonica, you had people who had breached the peace. You had people who were disturbing the peace. And 
we know the specific problem was their idleness, but then we knew, know that, that not only had that caused a stir and a problem within the church that Paul had to address when he was there, he wrote back in 1 Thessalonians, he addressed it again, he addresses it subsequently when he realizes that it continues to be a problem, he addresses it, and that's what that lengthy section that we were looking at last week, verses 6 through 15 in this chapter, is all about. This disruption of the harmony and peace and accord that is to be maintained and is a precious privilege and commodity within the context of the local church. I want you to see just how serious this really is. I don't want you to think that I'm making this up. I want you to see some things in the New Testament that the Bible has to say about this. So, for example, take a verse like 1 Corinthians 14.33. We're not going there, all right? You have the verse on the screen. But you know what's going on in this chapter, right? I mean, they had some problem with charismatic confusion. And in the verse immediately preceding this, he's talking about the prophets, and he says the the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, you want one guy standing up prophesying, then another guy standing up and blurting something out at the same time. And then he, he gives this principle, why is that so? Because why is the spirit of the prophets subject to the prophets? For this simple reason, if one guy starts talking, Another guy has something to say, let the first guy be silent, right? That's kind of what you're familiar with. That Why is that? Because God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. Does it give you some insight into the local church? Because that's a local church problem in a local church context. And he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Let's look at this one. This, this is a verse that I really treasure, Ephesians 4.3. We're endeavoring, as the King James says, or eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's have a look at another one. This is the Colossians verse that says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But watch what he says about this. To which indeed you are called in one body. So what is God's will for the body? It's peace. He wants accord and harmony within our midst. And then another one, which is in the context of this book, this problem, this particular congregation, he says, and to esteem them, speaking of the leadership in the church, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then he says this, as if he sort of anticipates, and be at peace among yourselves. Now, I don't have a verse up here that I think we should also consider. That's Matthew 5, 9. So when... The Lord Jesus is pronouncing these blessings or these congratulatory statements to the citizens of the kingdom. One of the things that he says is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. So if we find ourselves being disruptive, that's not of God. God wants us to be peacemakers. And so this gives you some idea. Now, Let's go for a moment and use a little different illustration. Let's think about disturbing the peace in the domestic context. You do know that's a problem, right? You do know the police get called for that, right? I hope no one has had the police called on them here for that. No one here, I mean. Disturbing the peace. So what is that? Well, it's actually, it's actually a misdemeanor criminal offense. And when does it occur? It occurs when people engage in some form of unruly public behavior. It could be fighting. It could be causing excessively loud noise. So it's 11 o'clock at night. That would be late for me, but for whatever. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's, it's late. You're trying to get to sleep. 
and your neighbor's got the stereo going at 120 decibels. What do you think about that? Bet you don't think very much about it. She don't think much. That happens another night. Well, maybe you give the guy a call or maybe you talk to him or can't talk to him and it's the last resort, you call the police. They come talk to him. They let him know you can't do that. That's disturbing the peace. It could be something like that. But in any case, whatever it is, this particular thing that breaches the peace, it's when a person's words or conduct jeopardize another person's right to peace and tranquility. You can be arrested for that. So we all understand even in a domestic context or in a civil context the importance of this idea, how much more should we understand this in a peace, in a church context. So this is what Paul is really doing. When he, when he prays this prayer, now may the Lord of peace himself, this is, this is suggestive. It's coming right after a situation where he's having to deal with people who have sort of disturbed that harmony and accord that should be in a local church. And he says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Let's just take a moment and pull some of this apart a little bit because there are some treasures here that I think we don't want to miss. Paul's praying that this blessed quietness may return. So, first of all, look at the expression, the Lord of peace. The Lord of peace himself. That is really interesting from this particular perspective. You do not find that particular expression anywhere else in the New Testament. What you find on a number of occasions in Paul's letters, you also have it, the author of the Hebrews uses it in a benediction when he says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, you know that? That benediction there in Hebrews chapter 13. You have the expression, the God of peace. You don't typically have the Lord of peace. This is clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, whether it's God of peace or Lord of peace, it does tell us something very important. And what does it tell us? It tells us that God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the source of true peace. And when you think about that, how sad it makes us to realize how much time we spent perhaps in our own lives, depending on when we got saved, or other people we know who spend so much time and effort seeking peace of some kind or another, desperately looking for some kind of peace in their own hearts, tranquility and enjoyment from life. And our eyes have been opened enough to realize they'll never find it because they're looking in the wrong place. Some people look for it in money. Washington is full of people who are looking for it in power and in prestige. You don't find it there. Some people become so distraught with the problems that exist in their own lives that they look for it in drugs or alcohol. You don't find it there. Some people run after all sorts of hedonistic pleasure. You don't find it there. It leaves you empty. And I don't have time to tell you the story that I had told you once back in a previous message, but you have only to review the life of Augustine to realize how true this is. And no one was better qualified to say it And no one that I know of has said it better than what Augustine said when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are restless, our hearts are restless, until we find our rest in thee. And what a blessing it is tonight to know that we can be justified, we can have peace with God, therefore being justified 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, beloved, I can only thank God. It, it, it would certainly be nothing of myself because I think if it were left to me, I would still be holding and wielding the sword of rebellion tonight. But when the blessed Holy Spirit persuaded me otherwise and I laid down that sword of rebellion, a peace came into my heart and life. I treasure that peace. That is such a, 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 but I know where it came from. It comes from the Lord of peace. Then secondly, you'll notice the word that's used in the prayer is give. Now may our Lord Jesus, now may the Lord of peace himself give. Well, this is a gift. It isn't really something that you can conjure up, which is kind of what I've been just saying in so many other ways by pointing out that the Lord is the source of peace means he is also the giver of peace, and there's no real human effort that can conjure this up. He gives it to us, and we have it in our hearts, and we enjoy it in our homes, and we enjoy it in our church. And when things go right, we enjoy it in our country. I could talk a lot about people who disturb the peace in that context right now, and we better not go there. They told me at the start of the service, and they handed me the microphone, you're good for 48 hours, but we won't be recording that long. So we we won't get off on that tonight, but wow, I mean that just that is serious, and I think that helps us see that. But it's a precious gift from God. If you're a believer tonight, then how can you treasure? How can you find better words than those words that Jesus Himself spoke to troubled disciples like you and me, when their hearts were troubled? And this happens to us from time to time. Something comes along and disturbs the peace, and our hearts are troubled. We're discouraged. We've gotten some some uh, untoward tidings or some problem has come our way and something has just ruffled our spirit. And Jesus was talking to the people just like that in that upper room discourse when he told them he was going away. And then he said this, Let not your heart, hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Now, we all know what follows next. He starts talking about a number of things that develop that, but then when you get later in the chapter, you get to verse 27, you can tell he's still really talking about the same thing because he says the same thing again. He starts the chapter, and this is why I have it there for you where you can see this. You go right from verse 1 to verse 27, and what do you find? The very same thought. Let not your hearts be troubled. Then he says, peace I leave with you. I'm going, but I leave you something quite precious. It's my gift to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, those had to be heartening words to those men. But he is the giver of peace to believers, but also to unbelievers. Now, here's a reference for you, and we're not going to look at all of this, but what I really should have done was given you verse 13 as well, and I, for whatever reason, I just didn't do that. But if we were to back up, and I'll get over here in just a moment for you to have this, but to verse number 13 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, here's, here's really your, your set-off thought. Here's really what we want to notice. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Then he makes this statement, for he is our peace. 
And there is only one thing here tonight, beloved. Let us be clear about this. There is only one thing in all of God's universe that can affect peace with God. On the divine side of that, at least, that's the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He paid that sin debt for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. He dissolved that enmity, which is what this develops a little bit and is also talking about that between Jew and Gentile, the handwriting of uh, the, the ordinances, all of this. He broke that down and have made of twain one new man, that is Jew and Gentile. And how has he done that? That he might reconcile both, verse 16 says, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So don't give up preaching about the blood and don't give up believing in the blood because that's how reconciliation is accomplished. That's how we have peace with God. And when we put our faith and trust in that message of the gospel, then we are justified by faith. This is what the Bible teaches us. You know, we were fortunate in the the ministry that I was at in Pennsylvania all those years. It, It didn't take me long to realize something, that we had a prime location. By that I mean you basically had two main highways. One was east-west, one was north-south. And Route 26 went right through our town north-south. And some people will pick up on this tonight, all the people here that knew, know Pennsylvania a little bit. If you just kept heading north on 26 from us, about 45 minutes later you'd be at Beaver Stadium. And I was in Pennsylvania 31 years and never went to a game. So I, I guess I'm... No one ever said they'd take me. <laughs> and you know what? I'm just not committed enough. I mean, if you want to talk about commitment, I'll just tell you right there, I'm just not committed enough. I'm interested if someone else is interested, but for myself, anyway, that's off the point. We we had this, I've recognized this, so we had, when I came, just a little small sign, and it wasn't even facing the direction that traffic flowed on the highway. And I thought, man, we're passing up a huge opportunity, and it didn't take Long before we, one of the earliest things we did was down and seek a, a zoning approval in the, in the borough of Huntington for a sign that would allow us to display messages. And for years, I told my wife the other day, you know, it's, it's got to be one of God's miracles. For years, I'd go out there every week and change the letters on that sign. I'd either climb up a six foot stepladder or a ten foot when we got a little more well flushed. The fact that I did that for all those years and got up to the top layer on the sign and never once fell, that has to be an act of grace. That just, anyway, I had a sign. I'd run it every so often. You couldn't repeat them too often because we, you know, our town was relatively small, but every so often I'd run a sign message there, and you probably have seen this or heard this before, but boy, is it apropos at this point. It says on one line, no God, K-N-O-W. No peace is the second line. K-N-O-W. No God, no peace. Third line, no God, N-O. No peace. Fourth line. No God, no peace. No God. This is what Paul is saying. Last thing I want to point out to you about this, and we won't take quite as long with the other points, but I think this is good and it bears spending a little extra time, but... I'll just describe it this way. This piece is supernatural. And how do I arrive at that particular characterization? Well, look at what he says. 
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Look at this. At all times, or we might put that a little bit differently and just say continually. Either way is fine. At all times, continually. And then he says, in every way. Or, if we wanted to, we could say there, in every circumstance. Think about that. Continual peace in whatever circumstance God is able to provide. This to me is what Paul is kind of getting at when in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, he says, don't be anxious about things. Instead, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do that, what's going to happen? The peace of God that passes all understanding. So there it is, because we can't explain this. How is it that God can overrule these raging storms and give us peace in the midst of them? It's supernatural. He can do it at all times and in every circumstance, and he can do it continuously. So this is what Paul, this is what Paul is on Paul's heart for that assembly and on Paul's heart for those people. Let's hasten and we'll get to the second one here. What else is on Paul's heart? What, what else is indicative of Paul's heart for the Thessalonians? Secondly, assurance comforting the heart. So we have peace rejoicing the heart because that's, that's a joy to have that commodity. That's a fruit of the Spirit. But assurance comforting the heart. Now, to me, this is, um, how shall I put this? What I want to say is, I think whatever exterior you think Paul has, now you see a, a note of real tenderness. If you didn't see it in verse 16, you do see it in verse 17. Why is that? Well, look at what he says. I, Paul. So he's interrupted his prayer for the moment. And he simply says to them, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Don't you wish you had somebody to write all your papers when you were in school? Well, Paul had somebody who typically wrote his letters for him. I don't say it was always the same person. I'm just saying that Paul typically used what, what, and the only reason I give you this word, I'm sure many of you know this word, but I give it to you is because you do study, you're going to come across this word and you say, what is that? Okay, I'm going to save you getting out your phone and looking up this word on your Google or dictionary or whatever you have. An amanuensis. We might say a secretary today, but secretaries tend to encompass a bit more. An amanuensis was just somebody who would take dictation, and that's what Paul, in writing these letters, would typically do. And we can only conjecture, but I mean, uh, some people talk about, well, Paul couldn't see well. Ah, you know what? Okay, maybe. <laughs> we can't prove those things. But to me, one of the most attractive thoughts is, is that using an amanuensis freed Paul to contemplate his thoughts, to choose his words precisely as he wanted and then dictate them. But what does Paul do now at the end of this letter? Paul takes the pen, if you want to look at it that way, from the secretary. And he says, I want to write the closing greeting myself. Why does he do that? Well, let's look at what it is literally, because when you look at it literally, it kind of jumps off the page and you can kind of see what's beginning to happen here and why he chooses to do this. Literally, it's, it's like this. This greeting is by my hand, Paul. That's almost like an autograph at that point. Which is a sign... Say man in Greek is a sign, but what is it? The force of it in this context is a mark of authentication, like a seal on a letter. And then 
in the hot wax the king or whomever dips their seal so that you know it's genuine. Paul says this greeting that he's penning, this sentence at the very end of the letter, this is by my own hand, Paul, which is a mark of authentication authentication in every epistle, and this is how I write. Well, now think about that for a moment. These letters were delivered to these churches, and they would read them. And I don't know, I, I, I certainly assume that the Thessalonian congregation was small enough that they could actually all see the letter after it was read if they wanted to. But can you imagine how electrifying this would be, particularly in the context of what they had had to deal with in the supposition that perhaps someone has sent a forged letter, a letter forged in Paul's name, which is what he suggests as a possibility in verse number 2 of chapter 2. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us. Now they pick this thing up, and it's you can see it immediately. It's not the same handwriting. It's in a different hand, and Paul says, this is by my hand, Paul. And it's like, ah, oh. they can be absolutely confident. They can be absolutely assured. They have gotten a word from Paul, which is a word from God. They know this. They don't have to worry that this is some kind of a forgery. They don't have to worry about that. They, they're putting their trust in something that's, that's fallible and something that's not dependable. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't mind having that autograph. But you know what? We don't have a single one. <laughs> I'm sure you know this. I'm sure this has been taught over and over again in this church. We, we simply do not have original autographs. I don't mean that we have slips of paper or something like that or papyrus that Paul autographed. I mean, we simply do not have original copies of any of these letters. We have copies of copies. But you know what? That really shouldn't be any cause for alarm. Any more than, for example, when you were in school, I don't know if they still do this, they they did teach you this stuff when I was in school. I'm just saying. They give you a copy of the Constitution. And you read that. Did, did you really read that and say, hmm, I wonder if that's what they really said? I doubt it. And I will tell you this in case you're interested, and some of you probably know this, if you want to see the original documents, you can go to Washington, D.C. 245 years old, but you can go to the Rotunda for the Charter Charters of Freedom in Washington, D.C., and you can see the original Constitution, you can see the original Declaration of Independence, and you can see the original Bill of Rights. But would it interest you to know they haven't always been there? Because on December 23, 1941, which was roughly two weeks after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, those documents were taken from that place. Not by the Japanese. I can assure you of that. Instead, they were removed from the public display there under supervision of armed guards. They were placed in specially prepared packaging in a designed container, which was then locked with padlocks and sealed in lead and placed in a larger box. They say all told, all of this protection amounted to about 150 pounds worth. From there, 
They left Washington, D.C. on December 26 and 27, accompanied by the Secret Service. On their way to Louisville, Kentucky, where they arrived at Fort Knox, where they were escorted from the train to Fort Knox by contingent cavalry troop from the 13th Armored Division. So my question to you is this. If the American government went to that much trouble to protect its founding documents, what kind of trouble do you think God has gone to to protect his word? I mean, doctrinally speaking, we're talking about preservation. Let me show you some verses. Forever, O Lord, Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Or the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. Or Matthew 24, 35, these are words from Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And ladies and gentlemen, we go on and on and on because God hasn't hidden this teaching in his word. He's made it abundantly plain. So that when you pick up your Bible tonight, you really don't have to be in any doubt that you have God's word. And Paul didn't want them to have any doubt. And so he did this. And, and to me, this is, this is the whole point behind telling you this. But to me, this speaks of the tenderness. This speaks of the care, the concern that he had for these people, realizing some of the things that had troubled them to say, okay, we're not going to let it end this way. You can be absolutely certain. This is my communication. This is what God has given to me to share with you. And finally... We have peace rejoicing the heart. This is on Paul's mind as he closes. We have assurance comforting the heart, and then we have grace strengthening the heart. Look at what it says. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You say, well, that's not original. Might not be, but it's good. I mean by that, Paul said this lots of times, and so did other writers in the New Testament. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In fact, He said the very same thing when he concluded 1 Thessalonians, and you might want to look at that because there's a two-word difference, or a one-word difference. Let's see uh, how it's exactly rendered here. But 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and verse 16, he says this. You know what? That's the wrong reference. Um, 28, I'm sorry. Verse 28. um, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what word is... Not here in 28 that is here in 18. And it's the word all. Now also if you back up to verse 16, you'll find something interesting there. You you think maybe I glossed over that. I didn't spend time with it, but I'll point it out to you now. At the end of this prayer about peace, he says, the Lord be with you all. Which is to say basically, he can do this, but he says with you all. At the end of this he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And it's almost as if Paul really means to emphasize all, and all means all, and all includes even the disorderly. See, this is a pastoral note. This is this is writing to these people and out of a heart of love for them all, even the ones who were guilty of serving the peace, even the ones that he'd had to kind of speak to in a firmer manner. He wanted them to know it was all done because he loved God and he loved them and wanted them to be assured of what God's will was for them and for their church. 
And so when he concludes this, he talks about grace, but he prays for them all. And he asks that this grace may be there to strengthen their hearts. Why does grace, why, why is grace such an important thing? Well, when you're faced with challenges and trials and problems and you, you're there in Thessalonica and you say, can we ever work through this? You know, we've got these people, they're intractable. That's a good way of saying, that's a politic way of saying they wouldn't listen. And the reason I say that is because, I mean, if you think about it, Paul said something to them when he was there, and he wrote back and said more. Now he hears that that problem's still going on, and he writes back and he says more. And these people were kind of stubborn, but he loved them. And they might have thought they were never going to work their way through all of these problems, these disturbances that occurred through these brethren, these disturbances that occurred through people who were... uh, intimating that they had a word from God and and throwing all kinds of confusion into the teaching concerning last things that Paul had had given them so carefully when he was with them. That's chapter 2. Or chapter 1, the persecution that they were enduring, of which Paul had sort of been the recipient of some himself when he was there. Don't you remember that brouhaha that took place? We're told the story in Acts 17. All that stuff that went on there, and they, they, they assaulted the house of Jason, and they said, bring Paul out. And Jason said, he's not here. And they took him down there and made him pay money, put, put him under bond. That Paul wasn't there. And they, they quickly got Paul. Jason didn't lie. I'm not saying that. They just quickly realized the brethren quickly realized we need to get Paul out of town. You know, Paul was a hot potato. And they quickly realized they need to get Paul out of town. So they did. And, but that persecution continued with those people and they were enduring this. This is what's treated in chapter number one. These are lots of problems, but you know they aren't insurmountable to God's grace. And I'll just stand up here and tell you tonight, it's easy preaching and hard living, but it's true. God's grace really is sufficient. We just have to make up our minds that we believe that and that we're willing to appropriate that. God's grace really is. Where does it come from? Well, I like this because it's obvious that Paul was, Paul was personally bothered by this. You know this passage. He says, For this I besought the Lord thrice. Look at this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. Now look, if Paul is making a prayer on multiple occasions to the Lord about this thorn in the flesh, whatever that is, my personal thought is, we're not supposed to know. I know people have all sorts of opinions, but if God wanted us to know, we would know. If God told us what it was, we'd say, oh, well, he didn't have what I have. You know, that's how we are. It could be the biggest problem in all the world that Paul had. But if we knew what the specific thing was, we'd say, well, if he only had what I have, he wouldn't be talking like that. No, he just tells us it was a thorn in the flesh, but whatever it was, it bugged it big time. And the Lord gave him this answer, and you've had this sometimes from the Lord too. I, I know I have. Not necessarily what you're looking for, but he said, my grace is sufficient. I have a different plan. I want to show something to you and to other people through you about me. And what I want to show them is my grace really is sufficient. I want to tell you a little story because it shames me. And I just, I think about this story and I just, I'm so ashamed at the times when I have magnified my own problems and depreciated God's promises. But this is concerning a man by the name of Thomas Hawks. 
If you want, you can consult Fox's Book of Martyrs and read this story, and you can find it in any other number of other sources as well. But Thomas Hawkes was burned for his faith in England in 1555. They tried their best to get Thomas Hawkes to recant. He would not. One thing they did do for him was they did allow some friends to see him. And in the day or so before his execution was scheduled to be burned at the stake, a friend called on him. He said, Thomas, I have a favor to ask you. I need to know if when others say, if what others say about the grace of God is true. So tomorrow when they burn you at the stake, This seems unimaginable to ask, but I think I can understand it. He said, if the pain is tolerable and your mind is still at peace, lift your hands above your head. Do it right before you die. Thomas, I have to know. I don't know what you would say if confronted with something like that, but what Hawks replied was, I will. They took him out the next day and they chained him around the middle. You've seen sometimes where they've been roped in different ways, but they chained him around the middle to the stake. They gathered around the wood, made ready to light this on fire. All the while he's talking quietly to these people who are doing this, and they light the wood on fire. Soon the roar of the fire is sufficient that they can't hear anything anymore that he's trying to say. And it seems like this goes on for just a an uncomfortably long period of time, long enough that everybody just assumed he was dead. Particularly, I'm not going to get into the graphic description of it, but it, it just seemed apparent that he was dead. When suddenly, if miraculously, he threw up his arms, his hands still burning, and clapped them together over his head three times. And the audience, which had somehow become aware of this request that this man made, people who were there, when they saw that, they immediately erupted into praise and clapping. So I have to say to myself, how often do I find myself expressing frustration over the smallest of trials? How often do I overstate my own problems and understate God's promise to enable me to bear up under whatever trial or weakness he sees fit to send? And when I say we think we cannot take much more, it's time to remember people like Thomas Hawks and really know God's grace is sufficient. I'm thinking about Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. I'm thinking about what a man of God, what a pastoral heart. Sign off these people, wanting them to be able to rejoice in God's peace for that to return, wanting them to have assurance, comfort their heart and wanting the grace of God to be magnified in their lives 
So I know this for me and for you, because these letters were written for us as well. God gives the peace. He furnishes the assurance. And He provides the grace we need. The only real question that I'm left with is whether or not I will choose to avail myself of it. Gracious and dear Father, we come to You tonight. You see ourselves more than ever in our weakness. More than ever in need of Your grace. More than ever in need of Your peace that can vanquish every storm that comes into our lives. And more than grateful tonight for the wonderful assurance that You provide the confidence each day. Lo, I'm with You always, even to the consummation of the age. Dear Jesus, please just help us to be faithful in this new and coming week. May we live honorably in a way that upholds Your name. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.